0: Want to talk about tonight briefly um, might be a little bit more academic than um, what I usually talk about, but I hope that it helps people to give um, uh, develop more understanding as to why we do this practice. Um, yesterday, I had a meeting with uh, one of my friends and colleagues, um, Belinda Kong, who's also a, a Buddhist practitioner and a psychologist. And um, together we're um, looking at presenting a a paper in San Francisco next year on mindfulness. And we have very similar ideas about it. And we're looking at um, presenting something which is a little bit different um, from the way mindfulness is often thought about and how it's become popular. And uh, one of um, Belinda's friends and colleagues who will pre- be presenting with us is uh, a man named Scott who's a, a research psychologist who does a lot of work with animals. And, um, and why that's important in this is that um, he does a lot of work at uh, looking at mindfulness in animals mm-hmm. um, or what we might call in Zen Buddhism animal samadhi. Mm-hmm. and um, pointing to how uh, mindfulness is actually something which is natural in the animal kingdom. And as human beings, we're animals, we're mammals, and it's actually a natural process within ourselves. So we're looking at throwing around a title, we're looking at something along the lines of a, an evolutionary understanding of mindfulness and how it's a natural, instinctual Uh, experience that we have and it's also relational because people when people think of mindfulness and meditation they often think of it as an activity that's just to do with um, your own inner being like creating inner calm or changing your own consciousness or having some inner insight about the meaning of life Um, but really when you look at it um, in a wider context is that it's actually relational. It's to do with our relationship with other human beings and other animals and plants and the whole of our existence. But um, that's not the way that mindfulness is often considered. That's why we're trying to take this different approach. Because if you look at all the literature about it, whether it's... um, psychological literature, or even Buddhist literature in some ways, <clears throat> people use terms to describe mindfulness like, um, they use terms like it's a, a mental muscle that you develop. You know, it's like if you go to the gym, you, you get stronger, and if you develop mindfulness, just like somehow your mind will become stronger and more resilient. Um, or other people refer to it as like, another tool in your toolbox or mm-hmm. well, it's like another skill that you develop that will help you through life. So you could use those terms but um, our point about it is just coming out of our own meditation experience for many years is that it seems in our mind to give a kind of misleading idea about it and then it may lead people down um, maybe the the, the a misguided view as to what they're actually doing when they're actually meditating. But if you think of it as a natural phenomenon, if any of you have pets like dogs or cats or whatever, well, they're your Zen masters. Mm -hmm. They seem to sit on the veranda on the chair and they they just seem to sit there and be present, you know, and they're not thinking about anything too much. Um, Sometimes they're in very drowsy states of mind too, but often it's just in a... An alertness there with a lot of thinking going on. But human beings, as you know, we have a, a far greater prefrontal cortex than our dogs or our cats. They're only very small compared to us, you know. We're very clever creatures and that's how we've developed. And it's a mixed blessing for human beings that we're so intelligent and so smart and so clever because we can do wonderful things like you know, create language and play musical instruments and build, you know, great buildings and machines and so on. We, we manipulate our environment much more successfully than any other animal. But the mixed blessing of it is, is they've got so much um, ability to abstract from our here and now experience into words and figures and language and philosophy and theology and so on, um, that it makes us very unhappy. Mm-hmm. That, that, that facility to be able to abstract can be our greatest gift and yet it can be our greatest downfall as well as in terms of our happiness compared to other animals. You know, so with all of that abstract thinking that we're capable of, we're, we can create the most wonderful abstract stories and things about the past and about the future. And it's not until you really um, seriously undertake a meditation practice that you really develop any insight into how much as a human being you live in your abstract thought. Mm -hmm. And it's quite a surprise (coughs) for people to really understand how much they live in their abstract thought until they actually come to a meditation practice and see it. The mind just unfolding into abstractions and concepts constantly. We perhaps don't realise how much we live in this disembodied state. And it's not just academics and intellectuals or theologians or who are doing it. We all do it. People texting on their mobile phones are living in an abstract world. Mm -hmm. Text messaging, emailing... mm -hmm constantly being up in the chatter in our heads, having conversations with our partner, imaginary conversations or our boss or whatever. We all live in an abstract world. And, um, and so when we take up a practice like Sazin, sitting meditation, um, it's not about developing some skill that we didn't have. Or it's not really developing a mental muscle. It's really just dropping back down into embodied presence to experience what we always naturally had there. To be caught up in this abstract world all the time is in a sense not natural. It's unnatural. Mm -hmm. To actually drop down into the body, into embodied presence and just be a mammal, sitting on a cushion, breathing, and just inhabiting your whole body, just being present to what's occurring in the three dimensional world right now, is natural. Mm-hmm. So if you think of meditation as something you've got to do to strive, you know, to get better at it or whatever, you start to go off on the wrong track. As soon as, as, soon as you kind of recognise that it's a natural facility that animals and human beings have, um, then the words that come to mind to describe what happens in meditation is you drop into it. That's a good word, drop. It's like we're, we're caught up in a thought bubble all the time and we live in the thought bubble. And it's like with meditation, it's like we put a pin in the bubble and just, just drop down into, into this into three-dimensional life. And that's all, that's, it's very, very simple. It's, it's no more complicated than that, really. And, and the difference, there's a huge difference between living an embodied life pretty much most of the time and living a disembodied abstract life most of the time. It's like chalk and cheese. And one is always very dissatisfying, But an embodied experience, even though it might be painful at times or unpleasant at times, is something fundamentally satisfying about it, fulfilling, that brings a sense of contentment. And also what happens in the process of meditating if you stick with it long enough, um, if you drop below abstraction into embodiment... What happens in that process as well is we drop out of um, what we refer to in our school as a self-centred existence into a life-centred existence. Usually what goes along with all of the abstraction is um, me, mine, right, I. That's at the centre of it um, and that creates a kind of self centered focus that sort of drives our behaviors and actions in the world. If you really drop out of all of that and all of the comparisons and everything that go with it into a more embodied state, then what you drop into is just a natural sense of connectedness with everything. Mm -hmm. So it's relational. It's not just an individual experience, it's relational, because if you're embodied, it's not just you're in this body, but you're in the world. You're in the here and now three-dimensional world, and that changes everything. That changes your, the way you're relating with everything because once you, once you drop out of the self-centeredness into life-centeredness, what seems to go along with it is, um, to use um, uh, common psychological words is empathy. Mm. Consistently all the studies they've done, the scientific studies they've done around mindfulness is that it generates empathy. Mm -hmm. So that's a sense of fellow feeling with other people. Other people who are different from us, other species who are different from us, other phenomena that are different from us. So we go out of just a self-centred identity into a life-centred identity. And that's the shift that occurs. Mm -hmm. And so this sense that it's natural and it's about dropping into something natural rather than something you've got to exercise to achieve something you don't have, turns the whole thing around. And if you look at all the Zen literature, you'll find um, it's not couched in scientific language, it's couched in more poetic, metaphorical language. But it's saying the same thing, that you, that realisation or awakening or enlightenment, whatever you want to call it, it's not something that you achieve. It's not something that you didn't have and then you achieve it through all this work. It's something that you drop into because you had it from the very beginning. You call it Buddha, nature, whatever. But it's there right from the beginning, even before you started practising, and you drop into that experience. Um, To finish off with, there was um, um, a poem I read recently from a book of poems that someone gave to me, and it referred to the experience of life not being one of um, original sin, but one of being original grace, Mm -hmm. and that's a lovely term, it's a nice, nice phrase, original grace, and that's what we drop into when we drop into... Um, life-centered embodied experience, original grace. Mm-hmm. We don't have to try and find a meaning in life, you know, or work it out or analyze it while we're here. We just come into the world with original grace, but we don't realize it. And our challenge through this practice is to realize that that was there from the very beginning.